On today's podcast, we're going to talk to Ronnie Swain, and I had a talk with him, and I think these are the parts of the show you're really going to enjoy. We talked about what happens when the economy goes out of whack like it did in the 90s and the 2000s and the pandemic. We talked to Ronnie about he had a partnership and how did that develop and how did it end and how did he leave that partnership. So I think that's going to be something interesting. Finally, well, we talked about a lot of things, but we also talked about what it means to be a tradesman and how hard it is to find those people going forward. So we discussed a number of topics on today's show, but those are just two or three topics that I think you should pay attention and look for on today's podcast at Small Business Horsepower. Welcome to our podcast today on Small Business Horsepower. Small Business Horsepower podcast is available on many channels, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Tumblr, or wherever you find your podcasts. Today, we are so pleased to have a tremendous contractor, Ronnie Swain, with us today on Small Business Horsepower. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this episode. And what I really like about it, this is the second one I've done in a row after the pandemic in which Ronnie's here in person, in my backyard. We got a little fire pit going here. It's a fire pit podcast, if you will. It's very personal. Get down to the questions. And I think you guys are going to like this episode. First of all, Ronnie, welcome to the program today on Small Business Horsepower. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here, Ronnie, or what? It's my first one, so I'll tell you when it's over. Well, you know, that's an honest answer, Ronnie. That's the way to get things started, right? Very well. Very yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Nothing to be nervous about here. We're all friends and all the listeners here on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Anyway, welcome to the program. Ronnie, why don't we get started? Tell me your background a little bit and how you got started to be like this king of construction here. Uh, okay. I don't know if I'm the king of construction, but I started very young with my father, uh, just working with him when I was young. And when he, I was 10 or 11, he started a framing company. And then I started framing with him residential and apartment buildings. And then when I was about 17, he decided he wanted to go into developing. And I enjoyed framing so much, I just continued doing that. And then I just kept framing all the way till about 1980, we were competing with all new small developers. And then I uh, was competing consistently with this same person over and over and we just keep driving our prices down. So finally, one day I picked up the phone and go, why don't we get together? We got together and that was about 1981 and we built a very large framing company. We had over 350 guys for over seven years. We built multiple tracks and multiple apartment complexes throughout La Jolla and all of Southern California. 1989, I think it was right around there, I, I, we were working with a developer Then I formed a relationship with him and then I went into developing back then and we developed uh, numerous apartment complexes couple big ones in Palm Springs and uh, numerous ones in San Diego. And then the economy came and bit us. Uh, and then that really hurt the development side. And in fact, it, it really crumbled me. Everything I made in the 80s all just went down the toilet. Everything. Everything. Went down to almost nearly nothing. And I just restarted back then, start framing again. I started back framing again. And I did, built our company up from that point on all the way up 
from the mid 90s when we had that crash anyways but i kept survived through that thing which was a very rough ride during that time if you remember that oh, yeah. those times and we just kept pecking away pecking away and we finally got the ball to get sort of get up and running about 1997 98 and then we really got our machine running again and then we started building for all the big builders again framing and then that was going fantastic uh, and then 19 or 2005 2006 started coming back in and boy things tightened up very bad oh, yeah. builders all got hurt well let me ask two questions first before you continue on that because two things just came in my mind first of all just for the layman what's the difference between the framing side of the business and the development side of the business you were talking about being a subcontractor is an easy project because you get to get in and get out right away. You have a set of documents and you go, okay, I'm going to start that in a month. I'll bid it and I start it in a month and I'll be done with it in three months. A developer buys a piece of property, goes through the planning stages and gets everything approved and puts all kinds of money out. And that might take five to 10 to 12 years. So the development side is a really tough side of business, dealing with the bureaucracies, many of them, all of them, and then also dealing with the financing that's involved. There's so much cash outlay. A subcontractor, you know, you kind of know what you're going to make on that site and you kind of know the time frames it's going to be. So it's really a positive thing. Right. Speaking of that, the other point I wanted to ask about was you talked about partnering with your competitor when you both saw that the margins were going down the drain, which is a very interesting point. My question to that is, like, for example, when I started my business, I said two things. I said, here are my rules. A, I don't want to borrow money from friends and family. And B, I don't want a partner because of all the differences of opinion and all these things that can happen. So it took me a lot longer to build a business because I didn't have a partner. But obviously, there's great advantages to partnerships. So how did that go for you? And did you also, is that partnership sustain itself? Or what happened with the partnership with the competitor? This question. My partnership was fantastic. He was a great person. He's got a good soul and he's honest. And that's one of my big things. I like honesty. So we got along very well and we both did the same things equally, which in a partnership, I would say if I was to do it over again, I would have somebody to run the office part and then I would have somebody run the field part because you don't need a partner that does the same thing that you do. So if I was to do that over again, that's what I would deeply consider. And as far as, like you said about financing, I would definitely have a different game plan on how I did my money. I would definitely bring a money partner in as I spent so many days trying to get payroll money for Friday. That was one of my biggest mistakes. And I bet you I spend 18 hours a week finding money when it should have been earning money that time, not finding money that I was paying high interest for. So, and I had a lot of, of good people that were very believing in us. And I thank all you, if, you, if any of you are out there. But business-wise, I would definitely have brought in a, a financial partner because you're spending money-making time chasing money that does nothing. You don't get paid for that. You don't have that in your cost breakdown, chasing money. Yeah, that's a very interesting point, Ronnie, is that what you're saying here is that if I'm reading this right, is you're duplicating efforts in a way. Because with the other partner, he's doing the same thing you are. Now you're trying to increase prices by cutting one competitor out by going together. And you both have your different accounts and territories and strengths and weaknesses. But neither of you are money persons. So what you're saying is if you had to do it all over again, you either add a third partner or the partner should be geared to something 
someone who does something different than you do. I totally, you know, after years and years, of course, that's what I look back and I go, that would have been the smart way to do it. I will tell you that I never had an argument with the guy and it worked out very well. And I'm still very good friends with him. And if he ever needed something, I would definitely be there for him. So I've, I've just had blessed relationships, whether I or continue doing partnerships with people or stop. I don't have any negative relationships that I can remember. Well, that brings me to another question, which is, you know, how do you get your work? Because I remember we hired you for a commercial project that I had, and then we felt like you did such a great job. And now I had a residential project recently that I've brought you into and so glad that you've been able to work on that project. So my point is that was a reference project, right? It was not where you advertise. So do you advertise anymore or all your work during this time mostly comes from references or? I don't really uh, do very little advertising. And for the last eight years, I've probably worked more off references as I enjoy the people that I work with. And then I'm referred to people of like and kind, which has really made me, it just makes my workload much better if I'm enjoying the people I'm working with. Yeah. And then you get a lot of references. Like I got your name from an architect, a friend of mine. So it seems like that has brought you a lot of work, right? Getting references from people as high as architects and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we work hard to, you know, when there's issues with, so when we get sets of plans, I'll go talk to the architects and form a relationship with them and tell them, you know, this is what I I think we can do to kind of make things because everybody has, we can always do something a little better. And um, when we look at some of the projects, my background in framing and structural sometimes can help the architects quite a bit. And it, they appreciate that at times. Hey, how did you decide to do both residential and commercial? Because I've had contractors that we've hired for our commercial projects. And then when we ask them about residential, they don't want to touch it with a 30 foot <laughs> pole here. You know what I'm saying? And, then, and the uh, same thing as the residential guys, they look at commercial. I send a residential guy down to our building project commercial and he basically ran away, you know? So, I mean, but you do both of them. You take it both on. How? Do, uh, so tell me about that. Is that unique for a contractor or there's many that do residential and commercial? Uh, I have friends that do both. I'm not really afraid of any projects. One thing, commercial, if you're used to residential, you think all these big things that are so much difference in the, in the plans than what we have. But as far as going to the residential. Well, when you do commercial, you're dealing with somebody who just wants that building rented and we don't care what it looks like. And, you know, it can have a flaw. When you do a residential project, the homeowners each are individuals and they all have their own little things that they want. And it puts a lot of pressure on somebody trying to make somebody happy. And you come up to you go, what are you really thinking about? And we can't see it, but the owner does. So you have to get that common ground with them and you got to figure out, okay, this is what's working. This is what's not working. I see that. And you got to, it's a tougher job with the residential because you have to make each person's personality happy. Well, in my case, let's put it on the table. You had to make my boss, a.k.a. my wife, happy. Is that what you're trying to tell me, Roddy, here? I mean, always got to make the, the, the wife happy. Exactly. Always got to make the wife happy. Everybody here on Apple and Google, Spotify <laughs> knows that, isn't that? Oh, my goodness. Isn't that the... You have a good, you have a good partner there. She's, a, she's decisive and she makes good decisions. So I respect both of you. Uh, oh. Oh boy. But 
I mean, you have so many projects going at the same time. Like I, I've heard you have local projects, you have national projects. Like how do you stay on top of all that? Because you can't control all of these projects, especially I'm interested in these out of town projects because you can't even see your project managers all the time. So how do you choose to do these national projects like in Texas or wherever you do? And then how do you balance that with the local projects? Do you have a formula of success here on this? We have five people in the office and we delegate things as it needs to be. We have our field superintendents that are uh, following up on that. And then the stuff out of state, a lot of times uh, my son or myself go on the sites and we'll be there until we have a comfort level with the lead person that they can take care of it. And then we have to, you know, come in and out. And we But we stay on it on a daily basis. We keep the communication open because if not, your profits will slip right out of your fingers and you can't let that happen. Because... Do you have your own people there or you subcontract that uh, finding a project manager or is that your own employee down there? Or We have our own people that we bring down there out of state. I just, what's happened is, is that we just don't find the work ethic that we use to be profitable. We don't find a lot of people like that around, especially out of state. They're a little more relaxed than the California people. I don't know if that's good or bad because, you know, I don't know if I'm, when I die, if I'm going to say if I wish I worked more, but the one thing the California, at least the Southern California people, they at one time worked quite a bit and I've still got that in my blood. And the people that work for our company still believe that too. So that's how we bid the jobs. And so they have to follow that process. And if it doesn't, then, you know, it goes the other way and then it's not worth doing the jobs. So you send people down there as our own people. You don't look locally for these people down there. Every now and then we'll try to get, you know, a a labor or something like that. Or if I need a, just a small deal for an electrician or something, we'll do that. But other than that, we bring all of our own people. We import our own equipment out there and it's a pretty big task to move in and out of those projects. One thing I noticed, I was just thinking of that because I'm reading this question, right? Question is, you know, tell me about how you, you know, supervise people to run these projects and so on. But one thing I've noticed is you have a great relation with subcontractors over the years, like your tile guy, your stone guy, your glass guy. And so some of this stuff, you don't have to run those people like through you, like you bring them in and electrician, you know, and they just come right in and do one project after another and you just tell them what needs to be done, right? So that cuts down a lot on the direct overhead and supervision. Am I correct? Um, it definitely takes helps out with the scheduling. We use the majority of our subs over and over because they do the quality of work that I give to all of our clients. And you can say, you know, you do good work. Well, it's actually the people that do the work for us. And But that's how we've grown together. And that's the product that we're putting out between the subs and us. And so they like coming to work with us because they know what the product's going to be ready. They don't come here and go, oh my God, I got to come back another day because you didn't finish what you said is going to be done. So scheduling is probably one of the most important things and knowing the scope so that when your subs get here, they're ready to go. Yeah. Scheduling is really important, correct? I mean, because the timing of everything is so important. What do they say? The old expression, time is money. Absolutely. And also trips. (laughs) <laughs> Gas it costs a lot of money now. Tires cost a lot of money. It's just the time to get here in San Diego getting around, it's, uh, you know, it takes an hour and a half to get somewhere and two hours to get back. So time's very valuable to these people. Right. So what do you then, I'm just thinking, then what's your primary job? I mean, obviously getting clients, uh, but some of those come to you through reference anyway. So then is your 
basic scheduling, basically time, allocating time and resources and moving the best people around for certain type of jobs. Is that what you see as your primary role today? Um, unfortunately, my hands are on most everything. I, you know, I meet the clients. I get the scope of work. I bid the project. Then at that point, once we get the job awarded, then I have to make a schedule with the people. And then I got to get them all on the schedule. And that's a crime in itself because, you know, just one rain day can make you make 17 phone calls when something changes. So the whole ball, but you have to stay on the schedule because again, time is money and that schedule breaks and everybody loses money. And then on top of that, your clients are probably not happy about it taking so long. So, uh, you know, I put a schedule together for people to want them to be comfortable with that, with the clients and try to do what I say because once you do that everything's good but once you lose the trust that's a bad thing right but uh, Ronnie I mean I'm just to play a little devil's advocate here it's fun right (laughs) is you made a point which is you're pretty much on top of everything let me ask you a question is contracting in your opinion a kind of business that is sellable because hey by the way before i get ronnie's answer on that you're listening to ronnie swain today on small business horsepower fantastic guy I've been basically begging him for the last two, three months to come on the podcast, and I basically had to put a little lock and chain in there and get him here, but he's here and he's rolling. But back to the question, Ronnie, because when I'm listening to you, you're the focal point of everything, and one of the things they talk about in small business is if you're the focal point of everything, then without you, the business doesn't go on, so it's not a sellable business. So my guess seems like you have family that works under you. And so someday, I guess you'll pass it to your family to run it or so on. Because am I right or wrong? It's not sellable to the outside because you are so much a part of it as opposed to being an administrator. As far as business, you're absolutely right. Because if your machine doesn't run without you, then you don't really have a machine. Because if you leave for a day, then you're telling me that your machine's going to fail. And that is a bad thing. Thank goodness for cell phones, but they're the worst thing that could ever happen to you personally because you're on call 24 hours a day oh my god absolutely i go on trips and my phone's ringing right it doesn't matter and if i stepped up to you know have other people the problem is and i've been criticized this by my friends that care about me that you know you got to hire people to do that and i go well of course that's great but you got to have money to fail and there's just not enough money in there to fail in the projects and then i got to deal with my clients being unhappy for the failure so because you have to teach people how to do the things that i do the problem is i can't find somebody that does what i do so you would have to create them and in order to do that you have to have time and money in there to have them learn yeah, because there's going to be a failure rate in that and you're going to go through a few people and then get the right one, but there's time and money in that. So there's a failure rate in that. So I get all that. And I guess that is the paradox huh, of small business. Time versus money versus long-term development, short-term development, whether it's contracting or any business, these are the real issues, correct? Yeah. And if I was younger and had the knowledge I have today, then I would rethink that thing again. Again, to give me a little better quality of life. But I've been doing this so long that my time doing it is going to be limited now. It's, you know, I have 
six, seven years left. I've got a couple big projects that we have on contract we're going to do. And when those are done, I'm already kind of looking at those are my twilight days and good luck with everybody after that. Tell me how you really feel. No, no, it's just, I understand. It's, I get it. And I respect no, I that. It. It's, you it's, get it. It's time to learn golf. Or exactly. It's and not that, and I'll, I'll be there to help some people, but because I, I do enjoy building. I enjoy it so much. And I enjoy a lot of the people that I work with. I've been very blessed. But to find people who want to really work today is a challenge in itself. And I laugh because I tell people what it's going to cost to have your toilet changed in another five years. There's not a lot of people that seem to want to get in the blue collar world, which I think it's going to pay as much as, you know, white collar very soon because of supply and demand. Yeah, because nobody, if everyone's an IT administrator, then who is going to install all this stuff? Because you still need this stuff, right? So Absolutely. So the demand for those people, it's going to be hard to find those people, right? Uh, that's what I see coming. That's what I see coming. Yeah, that's a great point you make here today on small business horsepower. I didn't really think about that because other stuff you can subcontract it, right? You can say, okay, I'm going to make my nut and bolt in China or Taiwan. I don't need to make that nut and bolt here in downtown San Diego. I can get it cheaper. But the guy that installs the nut and bolt you can't bring them in daily from China to do that, right? I mean, so you have to have someone here who's going to do that and wants to do that and knows how to do it because it's a craft in itself, correct? Yeah, and the one thing it'd be nice, it'd be nice to see that the blue collars took heart to what their job is and understand how important it is so that they can give the service that they want to charge for. Charge whatever you feel. That's a great thing to do, but make sure you're giving the person the product for that service because then if you don't, then that's almost thievery and you don't need to deal with it. And the homeowner doesn't need to call you at 1230 at night or in the morning to say, hey, can you come and fix what you just put in my house today? That's a great that's a great point. It's just so hard because you don't have a lot of people working with their hands anymore. And really, because you don't have a lot of people working with their hands anymore. And really, and I don't know. And also, I'm I just thinking of this, Ronnie, maybe I'm wrong about this, but is there a stigma attached with that kind of work too in other words like you know you go to school and now everybody's pushing you to get an advanced degree or go to college or do this all your parents are pushing you because they're not saying oh well my you know or my son and daughter is a plumber or they're a carpenter or but you know in the golden age like those were great skills to have and so on and so forth right am i correct oh i i, I agree totally and i still think they're great trades i mean to find a good electrician and to find a good plumber, a good plaster, good craftsman, cabinet makers, oh my gosh, to see the work that they can do. Tile setters. I mean, you have bad ones and good ones. The good ones are incredible. And so to perfect your craft, I think that's one of the biggest things that could just make you feel like a good person. And then to be able to give that to somebody that wants to hire you to do that. And then they tell their next friends and the next friends and the next friends. Perfecting your craft, no matter what it is, and you know, just be the best that you can be. That pays off dividends in anything. The one thing about being a tradesman, you don't spend a lot of time in school running up debts. They're earning money immediately. And on top of that, you're heading in the direction you want to go immediately and you just keep going and you meet a lot of good people. Yeah, but while I'm listening to you, I'm also looking at the other side because if you become a tradesman, let's say for 10 years you lay tile and you do this and you do that. Once your back starts hurting, then what do you do? Like, unless you're ready to be a supervisor, but then at some point 
you have to either become that contractor or developer or hire people under you and start your own, right? Otherwise, you're going to be laying tile for your whole career. I mean, so where's the growth? I guess what I'm asking is, if I started today out of high school laying tile, where is my growth pattern in that career? Or where would you like to see that? That's going to be something I believe that you would personally have to make that choice because in order to be to do well, you have to do better than the next guy. If you want to be the top banana, you got to be ahead of the bunch. And there's some people that have the desire to do better and other people are content with just this. And that's the difference, I believe, with everything. You know, you have a choice to go and put your 40 in and where I work 80 hours a week. So there's a point that you just, if you're going to work 40, well, you're going to get paid for 40. If you're going to work 80, you get paid for 50. I don't know. It doesn't seem that way, but it just, you have to put in, you have to deposit, you have to make the time. If you want to get ahead, you have to put the time in. You have to have that desire. You hear what Ronnie said? If you work 80 for him, he'll pay you for 50. I'll get you his contact details at the end of the podcast here, ladies and gentlemen. But uh, no, I understand what you're saying, Ronnie, but it's like any other business, right? You're going to have certain people who reach a certain level, middle management, not everybody reaches top management. So it's all also kind of what your goal is from the beginning. You're going to learn the craft and trade, plus how much of the rest of the business do you absorb and watch while you're laying the tile? Do you start looking at how it's run, the financial part, how to get clients, what to do? If you're interested, you'll find your way through that and someday you'll be your own contractor, right? That was how I navigated. I enjoyed the framing part immensely. I enjoyed dealing with all of our clients, but I really, I really enjoy the framing. The framing was really fun thing for us because the and productivity. And you should do some of it yourself or what? Oh, oh yeah. Started at the bottom. Started at the bottom. So you would lay everything down and do the whole No, we thing. did. Yeah, we did. We can build a house from start to finish. I can still do it. That's, But my back probably would fall apart. Right. But just like in my business, the great part, right, of small business is when you can do everything yourself. Because then nobody can tell you when they work for you. They can't pull a fast one. Well, you've never done it yourself, so you don't know how this works, right? Because you've laid that tile, you've done the plumbing, you've done the whole shebangle, right? So you know how it all works. So can't pull the rug over you, right? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. The key, though, in my opinion, is make sure you're around good people. That's in any business, right? I believe that's Being holy. Being people. Yeah, I don't want to get into politics, but remember when Ronald Reagan was president, they said, well, he didn't have a high IQ. But the only reason he was successful is because he surrounded himself with really, really smart people. And I said, well, wait a minute. Isn't that what it's all about? If you know you're not that smart, but you surround yourself with really smart people, you're going to look smart yourself, right? I mean, but your ego didn't get in the way. You just surround yourself with the best people. And when I owned my business, I knew I wasn't that smart. I knew I wasn't a technical guy. I knew I couldn't do this. I knew I couldn't do that. But what I could do is not afraid to be hired someone smarter than me in the aspects that I needed, correct? And that really makes great business, is it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that way that machine can run by itself. Right. <laughs> You're the wise man. Well, 
I can't believe 30 minutes have gone so fast, Ronnie, and uh, it's just amazing having you on this podcast. I had a whole list of questions, but we never even got to half of them because we got off into some great topics here, which is great, you know? I mean, Maybe we'll go to episode two. We'll go to episode two. I mean, getting you in here on episode one wasn't easy, but uh, but what's your, I mean, look at, let's answer a couple things here. One more, a couple things is that you carried yourself to two or three crisis. I had to do that in my business. I'm talking about the 80s construction, the 90s crisis, the pandemic. How do you carry yourself through that? Because the work's just not coming in. You hate to tell people you have to lay them off. How long can you carry them on payroll? Will they come back even though they know it's not your fault? You had to let them go and they start looking for other work. And when your work picks up again, there's no guarantee that they're going to be loyal to you and come back when you had to cut them and so on, which wasn't your fault. Can you address that topic a little bit? I had that... uh, Oh, absolutely. That was a very painful thing for me because I had very good friends that were our superintendents that we had on salary that were doing very well. Each one of the uh, economy drops that you mentioned, I've been in each one of them. I learned a little bit off each one of those. But the one in 2006-07 kept my superintendents on way too long. And it was the biggest mistake that I made because two things, you know, I thought it was going to get better. I didn't think it was going to last as long as it did, but we should have cut everybody down right away, but it took me about a year and a half of paying everybody's salaries, and then I had to put them on by the hour. We didn't have 40 hours of work for everybody. It was like a yo-yo on that time, and then they have definitely, they had to find another place to fulfill what they needed, and I respect that and still love them to this day, but it took them a while because it took about two years after the economy started rolling again. They called me back, and they apologized for the way that they felt, and I was, I was real thankful for that because their friendship to me was more important than anything. So if it was me, I would definitely follow your business mind and you cut your overhead immediately once things start dropping because there's no way to get that money back. Well, Roddy, thank you so much for coming on today's podcast with Small Business Horsepower. We really appreciated having you on the show today and we do hope that you'll come back in the future for part two. You got it. Thank you.